Good morning, everybody. Um, I'm Graham Winch, Professor of Project Management at Alliance Manchester Business School in the University of Manchester, which is the connection here. And we're here this morning to interview Professor Stephen Wern, who is a long stalwart of the world of major projects in the UK. And we're going to ask him about his early experiences in Manchester and then to look forward to what he's learned over a very long and distinguished career in the world of major projects. Stephen, my first question for you is, it's very noticeable how um, much of the thinking on major projects in the UK has come out of what's been called the first Manchester School of Project Management Research in the late 60s, which was in, in what was then actually the, uh, the Faculty of Technology of the Victoria University of Manchester, but became best known as, as UMIST over many years. And so can you tell us something about the intellectual environment that generated those ideas? How was the group pulled together? Who were the key players that we may not be hearing so much about now? And why Manchester and the Victoria University of Manchester in the first place? Why did it all happen in Manchester? Thank you. It'd be good to get it on record because it was informal in its origins. It was more a result, I think, of the experience that we happened to draw together than anybody's plan. Uh, my answers are the personal ones. Um, they would probably be different for the other early players. At that time, I'm talking of 1964, University of Manchester, and particularly the what you call the Faculty of Technology, it was then what became UMIST, seemed very keen, not only in the vast expansion, which was typical of higher education, but in particular, the UMIST characterized links with industry, management, business, but not political world, which comes in later on as, as one of the perhaps failures. My background, um, engineering, apprenticeship, making all sorts of out-of-date machines for post-war recovery, getting into hydroelectric engineering, Imperial College special course, uh, overseas, and after three, after two years in Venezuela for a year on the beginnings of a large major project, fifth largest hydro in the world, and then sent back to London and given the label project engineer, which was a coordinating role. Later left that industry, nuclear power recruited us for a big project experience. And I then ended as what they call again, project engineer for a nuclear power station in Japan. All about big projects. And the 1960s, I think, were surrounded by big projects. The effects on the industry support were quite unpredictable, very varied. But they saw actually, I think, at the expense of England, English heavy engineering, the death of a great deal of English in heavy engineering, or the Demise, to be polite. At the time, this was what 
became in government known as the white heat of technology. Uh, not only the nuclear as a byproduct of defense, but nuclear is then as an opportunity to, to sell abroad. And at that point, a man newly appointed to Manchester as a professor of civil engineering hydraulics, who I'd been working with at Imperial on a little experiment, met me accidentally and said, come and join us, bring all that industry experience into teaching. Sounds a very good idea. And my comment later that it was undigested experience. It was uncritical in the sense of learning from the consequences, but it was an interesting step for me. I'd been doing the diploma in management studies at part-time local polytechnic. Obviously had an interest in organizing things and how things related. Took, took, the, took the job and was expected to be hydraulics, big project engineering first, personal study of project management second. So I think that's the personal history of being given a job that could use the experience, but was expected to move in the engineering laboratory direction. Um, and instead I became more and more curious as to how to relate the diploma in management studies that I was half in with the actual world I'd been in, which was very different. Yeah. In effect, management subjects as I read them and was tutored in them was centered upon batch or mass production of a UK industrial world that was being rapidly replaced all around by ICIs building capital projects, the nuclear industry spinning off the first post call to hall projects, and many corresponding things like Immingham, British Steel with its enormous capital investment program. So that was the background, how I <coughs> arrived there and the atmosphere in which I arrived. But what was great was that the professor who thought I was going to revolutionize fluid mechanics was happily tolerant that I should go and get a lot of, put a lot of time into what we could learn and teach in what we didn't call it project management, I don't think, the management of all these investments, projects. In a way, I mean, it just became a matter of chance. Um, that yes. This all started rolling in the mid 60s in, in, in Manchester. Um, can you remember how the others started arriving? Peter Thompson, Martin Barnes, Peter Morris. In that same uh, department of engineering, there was a casual loss of member of staff advertised for what we wanted. I was treated as a deputy of the group. And the person we appointed, Peter Thompson, came in from water engineering, but a lot of business, contractual business of supervising contractors and so on. We had met, as it happened, in the same firm that sent me to South America, though he wasn't there. Um, so we knew each other, we talked. I must have been, as usual, 
brief about what I was doing on these all these project worlds compared to <clears throat> existing teaching and the need for engineers to appreciate things like cash flow, contractual commitment, you name it, particularly issues of relationships in project teams, which I was trying to study. Peter immediately thought in terms of what he could contribute on contracts. I advised him to do a research degree on it as quick as possible. I think Peter and I recognized that we fitted together fairly well in the background experience, I in high-tech contracting, he in public works, civil engineering. We complemented each other fairly well across a range of projects. And we started looking at our individual things more as deliberate exercises rather than personal study. And Peter had the idea that the biggest headache, the biggest waste of time, source of aggravation, I thought, not to exaggerate it too much, but nevertheless, that civil engineering was hampered greatly by not well managing contractual interfaces. And most of those resided by the golden world in my previous experience, cost, money, cash flow. So Peter put together some ideas as to how the form of work in civil engineering contracts related to the payment system in civil engineering contracts and put together proposals from experiments that were more testing, more realistic basis for payment. We talked to the industry as both of us had been on our individual interests, got widespread interest in doing some experiments, wrote a specification for a job to carry out those experiments, advertised and appointed a man from Canada who we'd never met, who seemed to be intellectually promising, thoroughly full of ideas in developing, named Martin Barnes. That was the first deliberate definition of a job to do to advance the state of project management, to manage ideas and to actually experiment. That was fascinating. And that, that I, you know, we can actually say that, that that initial work ended up with the new engineering contract many, many years later. But there's a the clear line through that initial not totally on. clear <clears throat> i think step by step we had to present an idea that was worth looking at in relation to how things were done and the initial thing was on the basis of payment do you pay according to the quantity of work only traditional you also pay for special equipment that had to be used and written off on that job? Do you pay for other time-related things rather than quantity? A set of three ideas that I'd like to know where they came from. I suspect they were Martin and Peter. Many a quantity surveyor would recognize them as the way they do things, no doubt, but nobody explicitly said, well, how do we mix those? for the reality of that bit of work compared to that bit of work. 
and create a basis where both parties are happy that greater or different payments should be made because of the differences in the work and the conditions of doing it. Yeah. That was a big step. I regard that as the biggest single step in achieving the bridge between putting up with things in practice and having ideas that you can't apply. And then, so the group of you in, in civil engineering, Peter yes. Thompson, yourself and Martin Barnes, and then in building engineering. Yes, the separate department of building engineering. Yeah. I don't know how Peter Morris came to choose project management for his PhD. He'd been a graduate, but I didn't know the members of staff well up there. There was a lawyer who may have been involved and a behavioral personnel man of traditional style. I don't know how that happened. But it wasn't us. Are there any other figures in this sort of cluster uh, um, in, in, in the north, what became North Campus of the University of Manchester? Any other figures in that cluster we ought to know about? Well, I was only there until 1974. I came in 64. I went away, well, at 60, 73 employed by British Steel to review the project management organizations, and then got the job at Bradford, which took me in the direction of developing data on the management topics used and worried about by professional engineers. As I left, they recruited John Perry, oh, yeah. civil engineer employed at ICI, I think it was Merseyside, I'm not so sure, but with big project experience. And he and Peter then became a, at least a seven-year partnership in developing it from just two of us plus gifted researchers to being a group, developing teaching, developing a chain of project management things. I think John Perry started the work on other terms of payment of civil contracts and then generalized into the first ICI guidance on risk management. So that was the other name that perhaps doesn't get the attention. Yeah, that, uh, the others did. And then there are others I can't judge from a distance, but there's at least three that are professors of project management somewhere. Uh, one in South Africa, two at uh, Leeds, and others that I can't recall, haven't got a note of. But the group became a group instead yeah. of two of us with very good individuals working with us. Yeah, at some point along the way, Peter Thompson became the AMEC professor, didn't he? There's an intermediate stage where he, had beca he became the professor of civil engineering. Um, he was promoted by ordinary, you know, by, by general standards, I presume, of which the project management was a substantial chunk by then. Uh, and then he raised the money to establish a chair that were devoted to project management, which AMEC funded, um, Alan Cottrell, Sir Alan Cottrell, 
leaving Peter free to concentrate on project management until he retired. Good. Okay. So thank you very much for that that picture of you know what was going on in in, in that period in 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 well, Manchester. So next question is linked to that. So there was something about the, the culture there. So both you know, just names are well known yourself, Mar Martin Barnes, Peter Morris, all went on to become key players in, in the foundation of both the association of project managers, as was, and the major projects association. So there's something very particular about the culture there that led to this hybrid career like you've had and the others have had, rather than staying in, in academia. Was there something particular about that culture in, in you, Mr. in those days that encouraged that, do you think? I'm not sure that it was exceptional. Um, lecturers in engineering, medicine, are often joining at 30 plus, having been in lower levels of practice as we were, before moving into research and teaching. But I think it was nothing exceptional in the engineering at that time to retain the hybrid sort of interest of being, yeah. at least to some extent, not much in my case, pursuing the, the technology at the same time as developing the management or the other part of the hybrid, the academic view. I don't think it was exceptional, um, but by the time I was leaving, short courses, we'd run several short courses um, pretty early on, and then teaching was becoming established in the subject, so it wasn't a question of being a hybrid, it was most, well, Peter and, well, both of them uh, were by then mainly teaching project management as part of the departmental arrangements. So, and the major point about your word hybrid is that industry was our laboratory, in an analogy with the technical engineering department. I think it helped a lot in getting the research going to have been in project work. Oh yeah. To have had the job of project engineer, whatever that meant. What's your personal view? Because you've done a number of review articles over the years. What's your personal view of how the field, research field of major projects has developed over the last 50 years? What do you think of particular highlights in that period? And perhaps what do you think of some wrong turns, if any? Highlights as regards MPA was the way the atmosphere evolved in the early meetings. When you had a whole group of successful people with one or two passengers like me as guests, who were thoroughly used to and successful obviously at competing in their industries and working with government, all the arts that made their individual careers what they've achieved. I thought most of them would have found it difficult to be asked to sit in a room and talk about project management. Mm. Um, 
I think it still remains true as it was in the jobs I did as product engineer. The distinction between your personal career interest, the uncertain judgments that go on about you and your view as to what the collective need is may inhibit quite a lot of potential cooperation. So if we're talking about the early history of MPA, I don't know whether it was Uwe who thought of it, or whether it was the Keeble College Syndicate who thought of it, but whoever they were, they set up a, a neutral base, which was excellent. But I think it was precarious early on. What's your impression of the general intellectual development of the field over, over, over the years? What was going on? I guess the 70s and into the 80s, very uncertain, but the interest in project management in industry was suddenly ignited. Suddenly there was uh, talk of project management in government, and it was the thing to show that you were using. I think it developed making people realize what a lot of obvious conclusions were in fact common, but difficult to achieve. Uh, I think it developed into perhaps promising too much. I think it had the risk, as we all have, of thinking there is a right answer. We'll find it somewhere if we work on it long enough. And then I think there came the reactions of the collapse of British Steel, the progress of the ICIs into Ineoses and, and so on, where perhaps there was then a reaction against project management as a label for making capital investment look sound. What would your advice be for the project team preparing to deliver Sizewell C? If you're in the team running the project, I think you have to eternally be sensitive to sort of the project and the, and the career incentives that you have. But early on, you have the excitement of starting. In the middle period, you have the complexity of getting accurate, I think, agreement on what you're actually going to do and when. So initially you start, I think, by what they used to label team building, but understanding what the interests and incentives are to individuals, but very quickly paying attention to the detailed definition of what you're trying to achieve and the restraints and the opportunities that are built into making the start at all. Because it feels great the first third of a project, but it's in that time you set up all the loose ends, all the ambiguities of the rest of the project. So you have to be, as I was once, both cocks at the back of the boat but also the person setting the work rate and defining what is what, what is needed. Um, 
not a precise answer, but I think those two things were the ones that I noted. I think there is a critical size issue to be aware of, that you're dealing with people who do small packets and you're asking to understand the needs of a large packet. There's a great deal of discontinuity in careers with people you need early on who aren't going to be around later. There are a whole lot of fairly obvious, in retrospect, things about major projects. I think there's a general thing, a note I've written down, you have to be aware of the premature start when you haven't got a, a good enough basis. You have to be aware of rigid objectives that, that needs flexibility. You probably need, as a colleague once said on my studies of emergencies, isn't everything in effect as an emergency because every decision ought to be both final, but in fact managed with that fancy word agility. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would be my lesson to them. Well, you need to decide an awful lot that you can fully keep in fluid state throughout. Finally, um, to what extent do you think that the promise you outline in your 1965 <laughs> New Scientist article, which was entitled Towards a Science of Project Management, has been delivered. Do you think we now have a science of project management? I think by science, I meant there was perhaps compared to where I'd worked, you know, on a Japanese project, uh, a flexibility and an openness that got that generated slack. I think if that article said anything, it was to suggest that if we only studied the books and we had graphs of where we stood, then we would be able to predict how we will end. I think it was the era of the critical path uh, and great obvious the value of realizing that the greatest single thing you need to be concerned about is what people are doing with their time. Because time is the only thing that actually costs you anything. All other payment is for time, direct or indirectly. Yeah. So the earlier you think about what should be happening and what it needs to happen, and I'm straying into now you know, a current personal activity or what should be happening and how much it's fully agreed that it will evolve that way next week and we'll meet next week to look at the next week. I think it didn't warn people at all of that. It suggested the logic and the needs of the project and being systematic about data is all you needed. Don't think you would do it any better if you did it again. Yeah because that's life.